Uh, welcome to the Sports Science Dudes. I am your host, Dr. Jose Antonio, with my co-host, Dr. Anthony Ricci. This is your first time listening. Hit the like button and subscribe to the show. We'll cover all things related to sports science and nutrition. If you want to email us with any suggestions for guests or topics, our email is sportsciencedudes at gmail.com. That is sportsciencedudes at gmail.com. Our guest today is Dr. Guillermo Escalante. Dr. Escalante is currently an assistant dean, so he wants the money, um, and professor of kinesiology for the College of Natural Sciences at Cal State University San Bernardino. He's taught various courses, and well, he's got quite an extensive CV, so we'll just kind of summarize it a little. Um, he's taught many courses in exercise science and kinesiology, such as sports nutrition, uh, prevention and care of athletic, athletic injuries, principles of strength and conditioning, principles of human movement, exercise prescription, health and fitness, business management, and more. So really quite a varied background. Um, he also serves as a consultant to several businesses in the areas of fitness, sports medicine, exercise, and sports nutrition. His degrees include a doctor of science in athletic training with an MBA, which is really kind of cool because I always thought I should get an MBA. But um, anyhow, with an MBA with concentrations in marketing and healthcare management, a BS in athletic training with a bio minor. He's also a certified athletic trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, and sports nutritionist. So the dude knows some stuff. In fact, yeah, he does. he's a sports science dude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Guillermo. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Antonio, Dr. Ritchie, for having me. You know, I've, I've known you guys for, for years through the ISSN, of course, and uh, I, I'm glad that you guys have this awesome podcast together and uh, bringing some evidence-based uh, science dudes like like we all are uh, to to bring the science out and, and uh, just uh, let, let people know more good quality information. Yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, we're excited about the show. And in fact, I, I want to start with... Um, there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about because you have an interesting background, not just academically, but you compete in bodybuilding. So let's put that aside for a while, for a little bit and talk about a more serious subject about why. And I actually have a good friend here in South Florida, Will Brink. We've talked about why do bodybuilders seem to be dying at a young age and not just at a young age, but it seems to be quite frequent. It's um, it's almost as if we're not even surprised anymore. It's like, wow, this is really strange. I'm sure there's a myriad of factors and you have a recently published paper. So if you could, you know, talk a little bit about that and tell the audience what you think is going on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, bodybuilding is obviously very dear to my heart and, and I've worked in many capacities in the bodybuilding circuit. And uh, yeah, this is something that, you know, I've obviously seen it over the years. And, um, you know, after so many years being in the industry, you know, in, in different capacities, I just got tired of of hearing people say it's like, you know, rest in peace, bro, rest in peace, bro. And that's what everybody says. Like, oh, so and so died, rest in peace, bro. And and uh, you know, and I'm seeing these guys, and you know, um, uh, some of them are dying in their in their 20s, 30s, uh, you know, 40s. I mean, it's it's incredible. And and uh, you know, I always say, and and I I work with Rick Collins, as you guys know, and you know, association does not mean causation, but at the same time, we always have to see if there's a smoking gun, we should do some investigation. And and that's that's kind of what I see. I, I see a lot of these things occurring, and uh, um, and obviously there are, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And of course, there are hereditary factors. Uh, you know, there are nutritional factors. You know, they're carrying a lot of body weight. So there's a lot of uh, different uh, covariates that are going to potentially uh, going to contribute to some of this. But nonetheless, 
there's an elephant in the room and I think we have to address it. So most recently what we did is uh, we actually looked at a uh, the autopsy reports of, of bodybuilders that died before the age of 50. Uh, so we actually just did a, uh, between 2018, 1920, there was, there was just a lot of more deaths. Like you said, like every time you turn around, there was another bodybuilder that, that, that was dying, both men and women. We actually focus our sample on, on men. And, uh, what we want, we just did a general Google search, like dead bodybuilders. Uh, and then we, we basically had a list. And from that list, we basically were able to narrow down. Uh, we found people that died of, of all different causes. Then we narrowed it down to how many died of cardio. We wanted to focus on the heart because that mm-hmm. seems to be the, the one that is most prevalent. So we were looking at cardiovascular related deaths in bodybuilding. And then we wanted to focus it to for the wow factor uh, for guys in their 50, because it's not very typical for a man to die before the age of 50. It's just not in, in, in all athletics. Uh, so, uh, as we started narrowing down the search, of course, there were people that potentially that 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 had died that weren't in the country. So we can't get those autopsy reports very easily. Uh, we finally narrowed down the list. We were able to actually get our hands on six autopsy reports. We actually had 14 deaths that were uh, cardiovascular related events. But when we tried to get those autopsy reports, some of them were not available uh, and they were inaccessible. So we actually were able to analyze six of them and uh, we saw some pretty amazing trends. Uh, well, the first the first amazing trend was the average age of these guys was 36 years old. Uh, so, I mean, so th- these are not not old men. And I mean, the, the youngest one was, I believe, 26 years old. Um, you know, so another insane. one was 30. Uh, and then and then we have a few in the 40s kind of bringing that that average up. So we see some very young guys that are that are passing away. Um, and then, uh, of course, we were able to see the, the autopsy reports. Now, I will say one cool thing that we found here was that the autopsy reports, there's actually a limitation in how the autopsy reports are done because they're kind of all over the place. Some were very well done, very thorough toxicology reports, et cetera. So you, you could see a lot more. Some of them were done very vaguely. Um, and that's that we actually pointed to a paper there that actually identifies what should an, what should a coroner do when they find an individual who is potentially a bodybuilder, potentially uh, has signs of uh, abusing super physiological doses of anabolic steroids so that they can go a little further so we can learn a little bit more. So that aside, uh, what we found was the average, uh, the weight of the heart was about 575 grams. When compared to the reference man, uh, it's 332 grams. So we have about a 74% wow. difference in, in okay. how much just the heart weighs. Well, over uh, a pound then too, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Next we have the, the left ventricular myocardium, uh, which was at, uh, an average of, and this is the thickness of that was about 16.3 millimeters compared to about 13 millimeters. So 125% bigger, uh, wow. than, than the average, uh, uh, individual. Uh, 100% of them had uh, left ventricular hypertrophy. Uh, 80% of them had atherosclerosis, and some had different degrees of, of stenosis in, in some of the major coronary arteries there. And then the causes of death were kind of varied from uh, steroid-induced cardiomyopathy uh, to sudden cardiac dysrhythmia. Uh, we had left ventricular hypertrophy. We had hypertensive and arteriosclerotic heart disease, uh, dyslipidemia. There was a history of dyslipidemia in, in some of these guys as well. And again, the stenosis of, of the major arteries. So of course, one of the limitations we have of this study is, you know, we compared it to 
the reference man. Obviously, we do know that there is cardiac hypertrophy that occurs in other strength train athletes that are natural. Uh, but at the same time, yes, we do, but they're not dying either. Right. <laughs> so uh, we we really we really have to compare them. There was actually a recent study that I just read that's actually looking at that uh, the natural versus enhanced bodybuilders in um, you know the. Uh, left ventricle thickness, and uh, we're we're actually seeing some other signs. For example, ejection fraction is lower in the people that are that are uh, using the super physiological doses. Uh, so we actually see some other, uh, I'm going to say, external variables that are, that are different. So besides the left ventricle being bigger in both of them, it's still significantly bigger in those that are enhanced compared to those that are not. And we also see other again, covariates that could potentially contribute more. So again, you add that to people that have the genetic predisposition to that. Uh, and, and, and then now they're abusing these things. And then now you're going to, instead of dying at age, maybe 55 or 65 or 75, you're, you're, they're dying much younger. Yeah. Well, um, the, the number you, you presented early, I don't remember what, what it was, but it was the weight of the heart. I think you would compare, what was the weight you said? And you compared it to the reference grams, man. 575 grams versus 332 grams. Okay. My question is this. So androgen use obviously is one of the confounders here, um, or maybe a contributing factor. Is there any data at all, if while you're sort of culling through the literature of endurance athletes who also use androgens and obviously they have left ventricular hypertrophy but they also don't don't tend to die on so there's this confluence of well their exercise is different they're not trying to get bigger but they do use androgens <laughs> because it helps with recovery is there anything like that at all in the literature i don't think they've investigated that as much to to my knowledge but we definitely do see that but but we do see a, a difference in in uh in the type of hypertrophy that occurs, uh, and and I'm not a cardiologist, but but I've read I've read the term concentric and eccentric uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, type of hypertrophy, which is it, it, so it's different in resistance trained athletes as it is in in the endurance uh, based athletes, and uh, one actually has more pathology than the other. The the concentric uh, uh, type actually has the the most pathology, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, yeah, it's very interesting when we actually see. Uh, some of these things out there. And, and you're right. I mean, I, I you do see endurance athletes that are using androgens, maybe even growth hormone. Uh, so but but at the same time, we we don't see them, uh, you know, dying at age average age of 36 years old. Right. I, I one thought on that, too, though, I would assume that super physiological dosages might be a disadvantage as well, because um, it may promote in the endurance athlete, that is, forgive me, that may promote degrees of hypertrophy, even independent of the training style, that might not be advantageous or lead to a, a weight retention that would, would that would probably inhibit endurance performance. So perhaps they keep those levels down. I don't know, Guillermo, maybe you have a thought on that or. Yeah. And I, and I think if we look at the, if we were to measure that those, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different athletes that are that are using, you know, these these uh, these anabolics in different degrees. But of course, in the world of bodybuilding, I mean, when we talk super physiological, we're talking extreme super physiological right. where I mean, some of the guys at the Olympia level, you know, are using, you know, upwards of one and a half to three grams a week of, of these androgens yeah. compared to, you know, in the medical literature, 600 milligrams a week is 
you know, probably five or six times what you would give a uh, medically prescribed medically to to a, to a patient. Okay. So, you know, 200 milligrams a week is very high, extremely high for, and that's probably the high end dosage that a doctor would prescribe to someone who's got hypogonadism. So to take wow. three times that amount is still super physiological, but for a bodybuilder, they would consider that a Oh, I'm I'm just on low test right now. Almost clean, I would assume. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They they actually call that. Some of them call that. That's I'm on TRT now. I'm like, <laughs> no, that's not TRT. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> well, let, let's sort of go on the other side of because uh, I think you were referencing uh, uh, Bassine study in 1996 or Bass, and I forget how you pronounce his name. So in 1996. The landmark study, it was 600 migs of testinanthate weekly. Um, and this is what I found most fascinating about that study. I think the treatment duration was 10 weeks. I don't know if you recall. Was it 10 weeks? I think so, yes. Yeah, they found, okay, so they got bigger, like triceps got bigger, quads got bigger. They had biopsy data, um, but they had no side effects. There was no mood changes. There was no roid rage. And to me, that was the single randomized controlled trial that, it sort of put a nail in a coffin on the idea of roid rage, because obviously with, with any kind of drug, you're going to have, there's a dose dependent effect. Um, I did my postdoc actually with a gentleman who did most of his work on, on androgen receptor regulation. And he felt that it wasn't, it's not so much the androgen that gives you any angry behavior. It's basically, if you're a jackass to begin with, it might exacerbate you being just a bigger jackass if you're taking high dose androgen. So I'm sure you've gotten this question before. Is is there a way to take androgens or some sort of anabolic steroid, or, you know, depending on the type, whether it's enanthate or test sip or whatever, at a certain dose for a certain duration and get bigger, faster, stronger, or whatever the metric is that you want to use for that performance athlete with no side effects? Yeah, I think I think there's a there's definitely a, a an amount there that's kind of a a quote unquote sweet spot where you you can gain some good benefit uh, without necessarily uh, you know getting uh, huge deleterious side effects. But I think you hit it on the nodes. It's 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 dose dependent and it's also time dependent. So how long are you being exposed to this? So uh, you know even if you're exposed at you know 600 milligrams a week for 10 weeks, okay. In this study, it showed maybe you know no 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 deleterious side effects. But what happens at 20 weeks or 30 weeks? Right. Right. And then I I see now now we may see this crossover. Alternatively, maybe you could use 300 milligrams a week instead of for 10 weeks, maybe you can use it for 20 or 30. And, and that's what I see now. Uh, um, there are some, I mean, they're, they're quote unquote evidence-based practitioners uh, that are, that are out there that are pres- prescribing some of this. Of course, uh, they're, they're not necessarily medical doctors, but, but they act to their, to their credit, they actually they do, they read the medical literature and they they actually do understand it quite a bit and they, they present it uh, not everybody but there's a handful of them that that I actually read I'm like wow they're presenting some good data and they're really kind of I mean they're reading studies in German and they're 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 digging deep into some of right. the literature and 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 you know and and my and they actually say it's like hey I'm not a doctor I'm not even a PhD you know I'm 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 somebody you know I have a college degree but and I know how to read science and they do they 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 can critically analyze the studies. You, you know, what's interesting, um, and I have a question actually for Tony, but some of the people who have known the most about androgen use are actually just bodybuilders who have no background. And it's purely on trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, because 
you and I know those studies will not be done on, it, it, there's no IRB approval for super high dose androgen use. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So some of these newer models that are safer model use, I mean, that's kind of what the, instead of going on this blast cruise, blast cruise, you know, they're actually saying it's like, Hey, you know, you know, bring up the RPMs a little bit, you know, but, but don't redline it so much in terms right. of, so you can take a, a decent amount that's still going to give you a, a good amount of benefit, maybe take it for a longer period of time uh, instead of going on a, on an eight or 10 or 12 week blast. Um, and then, and check your, check your health biomarkers, right? Check your blood pressure, check your hematocrit levels, check your HDLs, take your LDLs, you know, look at all of these different biomarkers and, and see what's going on internally. And if, if you can keep those biomarkers in, in a healthy range and you can still cruise and, and get some benefit that way, uh, you know, th- there is kind of that potential sweet spot. Uh, and with some of these, even the type that you're using, right? So you can maybe use a true testosterone, like you were talking about, appropriate sipinate and anthate. There's going to be some inter-individual variability before you, you're going to maybe get some, some side effects there. Some may have side effects at 200 milligrams, some at four, some at five. And then you can maybe add another, you know, uh, uh, type of androgen, you know, whether it's a DHT derivative right. or one of these other derivatives and, and, and get similar results in just using different things. I actually want to ask you, Tony, about, because uh, we know performance enhancing drug use is prevalent in bodybuilding, but it's actually most prevalent. It's more prevalent in cycling, believe it or not, but neither one of us are cyclists. So I wanted to ask what your thoughts were on the prevalence of it in the fight sports, because if there's a sport that requires recovery, not just recovery from, you know, training, but recovery from actual traumatic damage from fighting. Now, we have data, well, sort of data. USADA, before UFC, before USADA came in, you saw a certain group of fighters. Now USADA is, you know, obviously drug testing is a big part of MMA, and I'm not sure about boxing. You would know that better. How prevalent do you think it is in the fight sports? I do think that MMA, uh, well, the UFC has done a pretty good job at regulating it. Now, some will diminishing the use, if not the use, the dosage, if not the dosage, the type of drugs, those would, I would assume, and Dr. Gierman would know better than I, those were the shorter half-life, right? Because they do get tested. I've been in the gym over and over again where USADA just arbitrarily shows up or they'll wait in the gym for the athlete. The efficacy of the testing, that could be argued, and I'm not an expert on that side. Currently, though, I think that the use, as stated in MMA through the UFC, is certainly diminished. If not diminished, you could argue the athlete would have to be such an expert in beating the test that I don't know how much benefit they would be getting over time. Now, when you run those shows in different countries, as an example, where the athletes are native to that nation, the testing becomes a little bit harder to regulate. But as far as the UFC, I think they've done a relatively decent job at bringing the drug use down. Some would argue, just let them do it. I have my reservations when somebody is being punched squarely in the face about drug use and augmenting performance significantly more than it would be without the drug. Boxing, I got is a little bit more of the Wild West on that. And you'll take an athlete like a Chris Algieri, who's a WBO world champion, and I know, and I'm quite confident, has never used the drugs, and I'm also quite confident, has competed against many in his weight class that have. 
the testing regulations or the testing criteria in boxing are almost non-existent. Occasionally, you see somebody get pulled for EPL. I don't know why that is versus an anabolic or androgen. Um, but nevertheless, boxing has a little bit more uh, of an open game in that. And also, you have to take a look at boxing, too. The body types differ significantly. So my point to that is how the, you know drugs could actually maybe to some athletes have a negative impact depending upon body structure. Adding 10, 15 pounds is not going to do anything for your tank. So in that regard, it might be negative. The, the boxer's a little bit more of that leaner, taller body, lighter, lower extremity. If they're not, they're going to be too short for their weight class. They ha may have the ability to put some size on, and I'm sorry, some strength and power from it without inducing too much hypertrophy. But last but not least, not to take too much of our time, I think we all know the ADCC, okay, uh, Abu, uh, Abu Dhabi Combat Club. Um, it's pretty open that, uh, I, I, well, I'll probably get in trouble for this one, but you're almost penalized if you don't do it. So, <laughs> and all the athletes will come straight out and tell you, yeah, I do it. So let's hey, go into the plane regulating right? boxing, being wide open, and ADCC being quite, uh, you know, it being quite prominent in those three. Awesome. Um, changing tax a little bit, and then I'm going to get to some of the questions that we sent to you, Guillermo. Um, this is more of an evolution of evolutionary question and uh it has to do with longevity and the fact that it's sort of dovetailing with bodybuilders dying young but in general large people don't live long even if it's muscle so we know that if you're obese you know lifespan is incredibly shortened but also you don't see old basketball players i mean not we're not just talking about like muscular big right right so and you're you love the sport of bodybuilding is bodybuilding in the long run deleterious to longevity if the goal is always to put on mass mass and mass well i think it it can potentially be depending on on how you go about it. i mean one of the one of the trends that i've seen in bodybuilding over the last couple of decades is uh people even including myself you know people are competing a lot longer you know i'm 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 going to be 47 this year i started competing when i was uh 20 20 23 so i mean most people started if they started at 23 by the time they're 35 they're retired right mm -hmm. or or maybe they started at 16 17 by the time they're 30 35 they're they're retired but i i see a trend in in people going longer uh for for longer periods of time and and I have, I have no no scientific data on this, but I, I hypothesize that you know uh, again that the the exposure what we were talking about right dosage and length of exposure you know so now it's like your body can can handle being beat up maybe for for 10, 12, 15 years it, it's pretty resilient but now if you continue to push that envelope for for years on end and you have a pre genetic predisposition and now you're continually getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger um, I think collectively uh it may have an impact uh you know in, in over time over time and certainly for you tony since you uh undergo hypertrophy if you just look at a pink dumbbell whereas me i'd have to li lift like five thousand pink dumbbells uh, <laughs> <laughs> so tony's one of the few guys who's like no i don't need to lift more <laughs> I no I, I, I do everything i can to take muscle off 
Guillermo, maybe you can help me, and it ain't going anywhere. I'm trying to get rid of some of it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I wish I had that problem. You're one of those guys that walks into the gym, smells the way, says, okay, I'm done. That just goes, but uh, you look like you're putting it on pretty good my, uh, yourself, my friend. And also, I got to say one thing complimentary to, you know, you you look young and healthy. So to, to Dr. Antonio's point, Thus far, it doesn't, you know, with the, the tension you've put on your body, the stress through training, you come across as an individual that is very healthy, where I've seen people 10 years younger than you in this sport. Ha- I don't think it's been so kind. I, I think they look a little more stressed, weathered and banged up from it. But you have the, you know, the young glowing skin and and look young and healthy. So I, I think, like you said, it's multifactorial as to what would contribute to you know, uh, ex- expediting entropy, if you will, right? Uh, th- thanks, thanks for the compliment. No, I appreciate that. But uh, you know, and I, I do attribute that. I mean, partly to, to you know, genetics. My, my mom is seventy something. She looks amazingly young. There you go. So you know, we, we have that oily skin that helps. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, think, but, uh, I think the three of us are qualified. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but That's I true. but I have I will say that uh, you know uh, I've I've always been very good at. Uh, looking under the hood, you know, checking with my physician on a regular basis and, you know, making sure that other things are, are going. And even if things kind of go off whack for a little bit, making sure that they kind of get back on track. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I'm a big advocate of that to, to make sure you do that. And you got, I mean, even though I'd say I'm probably bigger than the average individual, I'm, I'm also not a, you know, I'm five foot five, five foot six, uh, five foot six with shoes on, I like to say. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm about, 190 195 in 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 my off season I think the heaviest I've been is maybe 230 but that was pretty wow. chubby but I've never really gotten to that extreme where some guys my height are you know right. off seasoning it at the you know at the at the the big big time pros you know they're off seasoning it at 220 230 you know they're, and they're competing at you know 210 205 wow. at my height they're competing so, at that God. yeah I mean it's 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 a lot it's so that that extra 20 30 pounds of mass is is a big difference yeah that's that's a lot of mass let's 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 uh transition to a much more fun topic and it's one that you're probably asked quite a bit trained individuals gaining muscle and losing fat simultaneously i even get this question and the way i approach it and tell me if this is how you do it or you do it different is i tell them to prioritize one or the other and work on that first however you can do both so what say you yeah, absolutely. No, I agree 100. I said, I said, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should, because you're you're going to get most benefit from from doing one or the other, right? Trying to gain the muscle mass or or losing losing the body fat. Uh, of course, of importance when trying to lose the body fat is try to maintain as much muscle as you can. That being said, I do highlight, uh, you know, who are you uh, that you're talking to, right? Because it it varies so much in in the response. So. You know, if you have a, you know, this obese individual who's sedentary, who's, you know, eating, eating two meals a day, not eating enough protein, has, hasn't exercised since they were 15 years old, you know, that individual, you know, you, you get protein intake up to just 1.6 grams per kilo, you know, uh, get them, get them moving. Even, even an aerobic exercise program will put muscle mass on that individual in in some, in some instances, right? So you put the weight training on top of that, and then it's going to improve, um, so I think it really kind of depends, uh, you know, training status, training age. Uh, I, I think whether you're male or female, uh, obviously, you know, your, your, your endogenous, uh, state, you know, what, what your hormones are producing. Um, I think, uh, 
all of those things are going to definitely uh, play an impact. And then I think the the more things that you're doing right, the harder it is going to be to do both, right? So if you're if you're already fairly lean, you know, if if you're if you've been training for 10, 15 years and you're 10% body fat and uh, you know, you've been weight training four or five days a week and you, you have, you've been eating enough. Pro- so you've been checking all the boxes for years and years, chances of you bought re- body recomping are going to be, you know, very minimal. Right. right. Uh, and, and that's when it's most important to really prioritize. Uh, but when you're checking a lot of boxes wrong and, and you, you haven't been doing a lot of these basic things that we know are important uh, and you incorporate them, then I think it's, it's a very viable situation for them. And that being said, I think I kind of take advantage of that. So even if they are trying to, uh, you know, let's say uh, lose body fat primarily, the nice thing about that, if they're doing a lot of things wrong, I can just start them, if they've been sedentary, start them exercising, get their protein intake up, uh, increase fruit and vegetable intake. You know, all of a sudden I can actually get more water in them, all those things, get more rest. Now we add all of those things. I can't, I don't even have to put them in a deficit and all of a sudden they lose body fat and gain muscle uh, because they were doing so many things wrong. So I, uh, I, that's, that's how I approach it. And Tony, like with the fight sports, obviously if you're in a weight class, the last thing you want to do is actually gain lean body mass unless you're in the heavyweight class. So for them, it's almost always maintaining a lean physique and or losing fat um, much different than the old days. If you go back to the seventies and eighties, watching old time fighters, a lot of them would just get fat between fights. I remember Roberto yeah. Duran, he would just get fat. Even Muhammad Ali would be like kind of chubby and out of shape between fights, but now, you know, obviously nutrition is better. So, you know, comment on how fighters, modern fighters now approach the body comp issue because most of them don't think about gaining lean mass per se, but they don't obviously want to lose it. No, they don't. And and to be honest, you know, the preservation of it, when you look at the 10 to 12 weeks, gaining would be challenging, right? Because of the sheer training volumes, the the multitude of biomotor stimulus. So, you know, it's not like you're just strength training. Yeah, you're doing strength training, but then you're almost punching some of that muscle off with the sheer volume in, in striking on a heavy bag, for example, for uh, five, six hundred, seven times. But conversely, then the grappling is something genetically dependent where some people put that muscle back. So I think first regarding the lean tissue preservation or size, it's contingent upon the body type. So if you take a Volkanovsky, for example, who fights right featherweight and shorter than most opponents, the he may still be more inclined to either hold that lean tissue or even add a little depending upon the training stimulus, the sleep and the diet and so forth. Whereas somebody that might fight uh, at 145 who's 6'1", obviously their body might have a greater propensity to rid that tissue. Right. So I think the preservation or the actual gaining is very genetically dependent more than even the stimulus. However, uh, to your point, one of the good things is that they are doing a better job right now, if you will, of staying within a reasonable range yes. of of their, you know, their, their weight class. And I think they're progressing to stay at that 10% or under. If we just re- did that paper, Dr. A, as you know, we found, we were very surprised by this, Guillermo, that most of the best athletes are uh, significantly lower in, in body weight prior to the 72 hours, 48 hours, and 24 hours to weight, weight to the scale than we thought previously. 
And um, even some of those, we have much less data on this from the UFC, but some of those in the offseason are staying within that 10% above body weight and below. So I think the sport has evolved to Dr. Antonio's point significantly, where they're kind of cognizant now of the fact they don't want to put themselves to hell and back, and they're reasonable about how much weight they're gaining in between. And once again, though, it's very, to your point, very body type specific, too. Now, it's great that you guys are doing some of that stuff, because, I mean, that's one thing for for wrestlers and and, uh, UFC fighters, boxers that I see all the time, you know, they're uh, you know, the old school method of, you know, losing, you know, uh, eight, 10% of their body weight, you know, in, in a 24 to 48 hour right. period. And, and, you know, it's like, it just, it never made sense. So it's like now, you know, stay within what I, you know, what we call striking distance of, of your weight, you know, so if you're going to, if you're going to weigh in at 170, you know, so stay within 175, 175. So if you need to lose two or 3% of your body weight, you know, overnight, that that's doable without having deleterious effects on your performance. But if you have to lose five or 10% of your body weight, you're going to have some performance uh, uh, detriments potentially, I would imagine. And that's spot on, particularly where the the maintenance of weight is sustained, like the wrestling season. You know, you might be able to get away with a little bit more if you're doing three, four cuts per year and you have a 36-hour rehydration window like you do in professional fighting. But to your point in collegiate wrestling, uh, we we got to keep those percentages much more right in the you know in the window of the two to three percent as you know. Absolutely. Now staying on the uh, body composition uh, uh, issue, I want you to comment, Guillermo, on fasted versus non-fasted aerobic exercise, and then also when when bodybuilders go through their diet refeeds and diet breaks, uh, what's the physiology behind that? Uh, because obviously it's a big part of you know bodybuilding training. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, so fasted versus fed cardio, that's, that's one that the debate's been around and I still hear it all the time. You still see a lot of, uh, trainers and, and, you know, fit fluencers, you know, recommended. And, um, and to me, I, I was one that at first I was like, you know, it doesn't work at all, you know, and and you see (laughs) some of the evidence. And then I started to kind of like, look at the caveats behind, and then it was kind of, it became kind of it. Well, it, it might depend. And I, st- I still think there's a lot we don't know. Um, I would say for, for probably 90% of the population, it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's just, you know, uh, uh, caloric expenditure, you know, versus intake over, over, over the course of the day, the week, the month, et cetera, to be able to do that. So, uh, you know, whether you're metabolizing fat or metabolizing carbs acutely is kind of irrelevant as to whether you're burning body fat at, at the end of the day. Um, that being said, though, I think um, there's really when, when we we actually wrote a paper on this and uh, we, we looked at a, a narrative review and we looked at the literature, a, a lot of acute studies. But OK, so we we have some mechanistic potential things there. But then we started kind of looking at let's look at some of the chronic studies, the training studies. And really, there's there's only five uh, that have been done. And, and actually, uh, of those, really only one has been done similarly to what would be prescribed in 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 kind of a, a real life scenario. And that was done by by Brad Schoenfeld and Alan, Alan Aragon, I think, back in 2014. And uh, and if you look at that study, I think they they were looking at I can't believe it, it was it was females. I want to say they were track and field athletes, maybe basketball players, one or the other. Uh, I can't recall right off the top of my head. But anyway, they actually had the, the they were actually dieting. So they were in a hypocaloric diet. So they're the only study that actually, they measured body composition 
uh, pre and post caveat there, they measure body composition with the bot pod. So we have to look at, you know, what's the, what's the, uh, the, the, the measurement error of that bot pod and, and, you know, the, the, the smallest detectable difference between those. Uh, so we, we have to put that in the back of our head, but they actually found that the, the group that did the facet cardio did lose like a little bit more, more body fat, not statistically significant. It wasn't mm-hmm. enough, uh, to reach statistical significance. And it might've been that measurement error of the, of the bot pod. But, um, what I always say is it was only done for four weeks. They were, however, on a hypocaloric diet and they weren't resistance training. So when I put it in my bodybuilding goggles on and, and I say, okay, well, what, how do bodybuilders apply it? Uh, so we apply it typically, it's not three days a week. We typically apply it five to seven days a week at some points, right? Mm -hmm. We don't do it for just four weeks. They typically do it for probably eight, 10, 12, maybe 20 weeks. Uh, So, you know, when you kind of look at all of those different, uh, assets, you don't, you don't just do cardio, you're doing resistance training in addition to, uh, protein intake was adequate in their study. It's also adequate in, in the bodybuilders, of course, uh, you may use performance enhancement drugs in the bodybuilding circuit, which might be deleterious to a natural competitor because they might be able to preserve some muscle. So there's a lot of competing, uh, I'm going to say covariants again, that may contribute yeah. to some of this. So what, what I look at is, um, you know, for the general population, it probably doesn't matter for bodybuilders. I think there's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't work completely. I would say it it may not be it's not better but it's certainly not detrimental for the right. most part unless you're maybe an uh, a natural bodybuilder then it may be because mm-hmm. you're on on a on a caloric deficit um but um you know when we look at the the you put those that number over time you know the difference between first and fifth in a bodybuilding show could be having an extra 3 pounds less body fat right yeah. and 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 being able to to do that so what modalities can we do to do that? So I think there's more that could be investigated there uh, for that particular population only. I would say for the majority of the people, probably doesn't matter. And the other thing that was very interesting in that literature is uh, there was a, an acute study with uh, that uh, Chad Kirksick did uh, with his group. And uh, they actually looked at what, what I termed protein enhanced cardio. So it's not fasted, it's just let's feed people protein about 30 minutes to an hour before you do that aerobic activity. They gave them whey protein, casein protein, and they look at oxidation rates. And obviously, it's got a thermic effect of food, so it's going to naturally increase your metabolism. But they actually oxidize a little more, more fat in that state. They haven't done an, a, a training study on that, but that would be another potential hypothesis. And that may be another, I'm going to say, strategy that could be used by natural bodybuilders to potentially preserve lean body mass and provide the body with the amino acids uh, while doing the aerobic activity. It could be positive for anybody in gen pop trying to lose a little fat and sustain that lean tissue too, right? I mean, absolutely. A very nice approach. Yeah, absolutely. And the nice thing about it is I always say uh, there, there's also the non-physiological parts of, you know, why you may want to benefit because Again, there's no potential detriment, right. particularly if you're doing the 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 protein component. But to me, it's like if I know that I can just get up in the morning. Most people prefer to lift; they don't necessarily like cardio. So if you're going to skimp on anything in your workout, it's probably going to be your cardio. So if you just can get up in the morning first thing, get that done. Um, now you're able to kind of you know change up your training. Now your your training can be kind of focused. I'm going to do my cardio in the morning, and then I'm going to eat a few meals fuel my body. And then when I really need to focus hard on my lifting, 
I'm actually going to actually train, you know, six or eight hours later. Uh, now, again, there's there's probably some conflicting evidence or that there's a, an interference effect or some of this. If you're doing low intensity, probably not. But again, if I'm a bodybuilder and I'm trying to preserve every ounce of lean body mass, you know, why not preserve that muscle mass and, and spread out my my cardio for my for my resistance training yes. session yep. uh, as much as possible. Awesome. So those are kind of the non-physiological reasons why, why you may do it. And you don't have to be in the gym as long. You kind of focus on one thing. Love yeah, and also there's uh there are endurance athletes that train fasted because you can't really eat anything before you go run, bike, or swim. I mean, imagine consuming something before you go swimming, you'll like throw up in the pool. So, <laughs> so, so sort of by default, it has to be fasted. And I think another thing is in the endurance world, and this is a short sidebar, but teaching yourself to train in a fasted state has its value as well, because you don't always have food with you. I mean, there's particularly in sports like running, it's not like you're carrying food. <laughs> so cycling is different because you could carry food with you. You know, there's other sports swimming, you obviously can't carry food. So there, I think there's a role there. And the sort of it's a waste of time to do fasted cardio, I think sort of misses the forest for the trees. Because there, as you said, if you're doing this five days a week, versus in that study, I think you said it was three days a week in that yeah. study. Yeah, I mean, that's completely different. And also, if you're doing it long term, that's different than doing it for weeks. So I think, uh, you know, I think it's important for us to for us to state that now, going back to so now you've competed in a show. And now you have to go through this refeed. Um, there's not much data on this. A lot of it is trial and error. Could you explain the physiology between between, you know, you know, getting that diet refeed or reverse dieting or whatever the nomenclature is, because it seems to be all over the place. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the concept was there the, to kind of backtrack one, one small step before that is there's definitely a, a, a body fat overshoot that, that is waiting to happen. If, if, especially if you've done your, your diet intensely, I mean, traditionally bodybuilders used to diet, as you guys know, for just 12 weeks, that was how long, how long did you prep for your show? 12 weeks. And then, and, in, and, and that was just like the cookie cutter, like you need to diet for just 12 weeks. And it's like, and then all of a sudden they realize, well, what did we diet for like 15 or 20 or 24? Right. And, and now we actually see, well, there's, there's some potential benefit to maybe dieting, you know, 20 to 24 weeks to prepare for a competition. And that's the, the downside is it's a long time, right? But yeah, the upside is, is you, you <laughs> maybe don't have to suffer as much because if you have to lose 24 pounds, 30 pounds of body fat in 12 weeks, can you do it? Yeah. You're going to be pretty miserable though, but now you spread that out over 24 weeks you're going to still be miserable for a little longer, but but you don't have to create as as much deficit to, uh, to to go into it, right? So maybe your your training volume can be a little bit lower, your caloric deficit can be a little bit lower, can be adjusted a little bit differently. Um, and and that being said, I mean we do have data, as you guys know, that you know the faster we lose it, um, then your your fat overshoot is going to be potentially higher. And, and we, we do see some of that. So if you're, you're why a lot of that has to do, cause you're going to be losing a lot of, as you're losing it faster, you're probably not going to preserve as much lean body mass. So that's going to be a contributing factor to that. Have um, you experimented with yourself on that versus just pigging out after show versus a slow refeed? Oh yeah. I have, I have like, I have books kind of like this of like data of my stuff. And um, I think that the most uh, I'll give, I mean, I, cause I can eat, I love to eat guys. I can put some food down and uh, my, my, my worst rebound ever. Uh, 
I, I got down to 165. Okay. That was on, on, on weigh-in day on Thursday. Uh, I was on stage at about 174, uh, 24 hours later. And then uh, two days later, I was 205. <laughs> 74. So what do we got there? 26. We got 31 pounds in two days. <laughs> and, and, uh, and yeah, I ate a lot. I think I actually logged in. So most I've ever eaten in a day, I, I ate. Uh, I almost got the 13,000 calories, 12,997 calories of food. Oh and I mean, it was, it was, uh, I mean, just a huge, and, and that was my biggest day, but I had, I had some six, seven, 8,000 calorie days uh, as well. And this was, this was kind of leading to the, like the week, but, but yeah, I mean, let me tell you, I fat overshoot very, I, I had a fat overshoot very quick. It was ugly to the point where, you know, people say it's like, how many years ago was that show? And then I'll tell them that was like last week. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's too fun. Now, does it, as you get older, does it get harder to lose that fat? Because you've gone through these multiple cycles. Yeah. Well, now I, I try to be a little more careful. Um, I mean, and, and I learned from that because I mean, it's, it's extremely uncomfortable. I mean, it is dangerous, of course. I mean, you're, because mm-hmm. you're not gaining fat uh, uh, all at once. You're, you're gaining a, a ton of water weight. I mean, you get pitting edema in your ankles. You can't breathe. I mean, it's your, your blood pressure is through the roof. I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, and, and you can get some rhabdomyolysis really, really bad. You can wow. get, I mean, it's, it can get, it can get very, very crazy. So, um, it, it's definitely not recommended. It's a health hazard. So this is why I think it's important. Uh, you know, uh, Lane Norton came out with this many years ago. It's like, Hey, you know, you can, you can really go through a little bit slower, being more methodical, but I think it got to the point where it was a little bit too much, like a little bit too slow. Right. So, uh, you know, my, what I've learned over the years, my approach is yes, we don't want to go from, you know, being in a, hypocaloric state for for weeks and weeks and then all of a sudden boom now you're eating seven eight thousand calories you know uh, without paying attention to anything um there's a happy need in there i also don't like to being in a deficit for so long and then you know staying in a deficit for for a long period of time so some people kind of stay in a deficit for for a longer period so i really kind of like to get up to about maintenance calories but you have to kind of figure out where maintenance is because obviously uh, typically after a show, you're going to maybe not do as much cardio. You, you might be doing your training volume is going to decrease overall, maybe your training intensity. So uh, you have to take that into account. You know, I'm not burning, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred calories a day on physical activity anymore. So you have to take that into account and figure out what that maintenance is. But nonetheless, get to that maintenance. Um, so my approach is typically, hey, after you compete, have one meal, untrack, whatever you want, maybe uh, the next morning, have one meal, and then that's it. And after that, you have to kind of go back on a plan. Uh, and that plan should be somewhat more methodical where you're trying to find that maintenance. Uh, and then you, you can kind of go through. And I actually like to go uh, overeat for the night, overeat for the morning. And then I actually like to go on, on, on a slight deficit for maybe two or three days, then try to bring you up to maintenance uh, for about a week. And then, and then slowly go up from maintenance. Some people kind of take a long time to get to the maintenance or above the maintenance. And then I think, but that does, it just prolongs your recovery after a show. And, and you see some of the data in, in some of the natural bodybuilders. There's been some case studies and you actually see, you know, how long it takes for them to get their, 
their thyroid back, to get their testosterone back, uh, their sex hormone binding globulin to a normal level. Uh, all of those things kind of take a long time if you don't uh, feed yourself uh, fast enough. So to me, there's no sense in in prolonging it. I say, get out of the deficit as quickly as you can without, without uh, and, and just kind of teeter your training accordingly, monitor it and, and adjust it so that you're, you're at that balance uh, within there. So what you're saying is don't eat like Michael Phelps after you uh, compete. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Now, uh, yeah, we don't want to keep you over time. I mean, we, we you know, want to be respectful of, of all the time you're giving us. So I want to cover two things real quickly and have your comment. And Tony, you uh, chime in as well. Um, your thoughts on T-boosters, because I know Tony and I have talked about the various T-boosters that are being promoted online and also different forms of creatine. Yeah, absolutely. So the T-boosters, you know, this is pretty crazy. Uh, you know, look, it's, it's like a, in, this was like 10 years ago, it was a $2 billion industry. And yeah. I think it's just higher, you know, so now it's, it's even higher in the, in the last uh, few years. And, you know, you have things like the traditional tribulus, you have the fenugreeks, you have the zinc, the maca, the ashwanda, uh, and then you have the, the Tonkat alley. So you have a bunch of these different types. Uh, recent meta-analysis just kind of shows, says, okay, you know, there's, there, there's, uh, they, they looked at all of these different, uh, supplements there that that are that are used but they they have a few caveats so uh one they say is like well first of all there's not enough evidence that any of them really work um in 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 large part um and then a couple of them don't even have like an established like mechanism of action which to me is kind of like fundamental right like okay well if it does this like how does it do that physiologically show me show me the pathway in which it, it it creates this increase in testosterone or increase or maybe increases your free testosterone um and a lot of them don't even have that that mechanistic component there in in when you actually read the the literature but uh the the other things that we that we actually see as well is uh a lot of them have multi ingredients so it's hard to kind of put it on one ingredient um the meta analysis specifically said there's anywhere from like eight to up to 50 ingredients in there. So 50. you really can't 50, <laughs> five, zero. So you really can't say it's just fenugreek or it's just the tribulus because you have all these other things that are working in there. And of course, you never know with these supplements because they're not necessarily tested. So is it really just those ingredients or did they, mm-hmm. did they put maybe, a, you know, a, an anabolic pro-hormone in there before right. that, that maybe does increase it? because it's a pro hormone or maybe an actual, even, you know, I read one study a while back where some, some, some supplements were laced with like small dosages, Dianabol. It's like, (laughs) I'm I'm getting, I'm getting jacked at all this. It's like, well, yeah, you're taking Dianabol. (laughs) I think Dianabol is pretty cheap. So that would make sense too. I think it would go back to cost effectiveness, but (laughs) that would be effective. (laughs) Yeah. So when, when you see it, I, I really just see, uh, you know, it's, I, 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 just look at it with a, with a, with caution. The other thing is the toxicity of some of these have not been really studied. So we don't know what some of the potential side effects are. Uh, and, and some of them do have these side effects um, without any of the real benefits. So you're basically getting side effects of doing like anabolic steroids without the same benefit. And so to me, it's like, if you're going to do it, might as well just, you know, try to try to take the real thing. If you're going to yeah, I'm real, I'm real hesitant at ever giving someone advice on taking these herbs, because I think you hit the nail on the head that mechanistically, it's like, 
I always, well, you ask the same questions like, well, okay, let's say it does what it does, but how does it do it? And there's no mechanism of action. And I think that's, what's really problematic for me. It's, it's like, you know, I tell people, Hey, if you want to try it, try it. But, you know, it seems like these things sort of, they have a life cycle, they show up and they become real popular, then they disappear. And then someone else promotes it. And it's like, holy crap. Now I'm getting questions about the same stuff you know, that I was getting 10 years ago. Who knows? Someone might start asking me about, you know, uh, ferulic acid or something. I don't know if you remember <laughs> ferulic acid or no, my favorite. Did you ever try Smilax? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Smilax. I remember that. <laughs> it was like sublingual or <laughs> Yes. 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 I, I even bought it without like 20 some years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, like we I'm, try all this stuff. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get ripped. Just watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny how this stuff just sort of comes full circle. Um, oh, your thoughts on the different cre- forms of creatine? Yeah. So we we did a, a really cool uh, study, a little different approach to some of them, but we we went on Amazon.com and we were interested in seeing. It's like, hey, like how many alternative forms of creatine are sold on, on amazon.com. So uh, we, we did a search. Uh, we, we literally just went on Amazon on a particular date. And then we just put creatine and just saw so all the products that, that came out uh, you know, that, that were just called themselves creatine. And, and then uh, we actually found, I took a few notes, 175 different creatine supplements 16 different forms of creatine were oh, wow. actually in there. So, you know, we have like your creatine ethyl ester, we have the creatine serum, we have the creatine nitrate, creatine citrate, uh, all different sorts of plant. My favorite brand, I have to remember, was called Creatine. Creatine. And, and the way that they marketed themselves is and differentiate was because they, they have 10 forms of creatine, making it the most effective, right? <laughs> Crea 10. God Crea forbid 10. it was Crea 9. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, but uh, really we we found, we did an, an analysis of you know, what's the cost per gram. Um, and then of course the, the cost per gram for creatine monohydrate supplements is like 12 cents per gram. Whereas for the alternative forms of creatine is about 26 cents per gram. So, uh, and the evidence, you know, kind of shows, you know, when you look through it is, uh, Creatine monohydrate is still the gold standard. You know, there's there's really not going to be um, uh, currently. There's nothing, no evidence showing that anything else is is better than the creatine monohydrate. And, and that being said, I always I always kind of put an asterisk next to that. So just because just because something is not better than today doesn't mean that there's not something that's going to be better than at some point in time, right? So right. I think it's still because creatine still has some limitations. We're looking at some of the brain research now, and we see okay. It, it doesn't cross the, the blood brain barrier as well uh, as certain other things uh, or not as certain other things, but as, as well at the, the, the levels of creatine content in the brain aren't, aren't quite as high uh, when you take creatine monohydrate, you see some, a lot of non-responders in that. So are there other potential forms that may do it? You know, maybe, maybe not uh, right now. I, I always kind of leave a, you know, a, a, an open statement kind of that scientific lens of, you know, just because that's it today doesn't mean that that's going to be it forever. We have to keep an open mind and, and keep investigating further to see what what things show. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that's kind of what we found. You know, uh, most of them had very limited evidence in terms of uh, there was just either very few publications or no publications uh, on uh, scientific publications on these particular uh, forms. And uh, and again, I, I kind of 
just earmark that again, where again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't work. It just means we need to look further and see if there's other potential forms that maybe at some point uh, will work. One that's interesting to me is the guanino acetic acid, which is the creatine mm-hmm. precursor. Um, and uh, uh, Dr. Osajek has been doing a lot of work in that for the last few years. And uh, there's actually some pretty cool evidence uh, to, to show that, uh, hey, there's there's some promise there. And uh, particularly when it comes to the, uh, the, the brain creatine, uh, with that. But there's a lot of toxicity stuff that kind of needs to be, you know, hammered out uh, before that. And there are some products that are, that are coming out uh, with that. Of course, it takes a little longer to raise muscle cre- or blood creatine content because it, it's got to convert it in the body. Uh, it's got to get methylated. So it's a little bit different um, in rather than the creatine monohydrate. Um, so yeah, that one's, that one's actually pretty interesting. And I read another interesting study on creatine nitrate plus creatinine. Uh, and Dr. Osterjik actually did this study too. Wait, you said creatine nitrate plus plus creatinine. creatinine. Yeah. So the study it had um, it had a creatinine a creatine nitrate group. It had a creatine nitrate plus creatinine group. And then I can't remember if it had placebo or a creatine group. I can't remember what the third group was. But they actually compared uh, the uh, the effects of this stuff and and. Uh, the, the, they actually wrote a little paragraph. They, they don't understand the mechanism, but they actually hypothesize that creatinine can potentially turn back to creatine. Back to it's not necessarily a, a, you know, a, a, bite, a, a waste product per se. Uh, so the article is actually pretty intriguing. It just came out a, a couple of years ago and, uh, and it actually had, you know, similar effects to the, to the, to the creatine monohydrate group, I believe. So that was a pretty interesting study. Yeah. That's not one I would have ever thought of. Um, and the brain stuff is fascinating. It really yeah, is. It really is. And I think maybe we need higher doses for, you know, getting it into the brain, perhaps. Yeah. And, and that's kind of why the, the guanido acetic acid in brain creatine is, is quite unique because, uh, you know, it needs to cross the blood brain barrier, but the brain can obviously produce its own creatine, but maybe it could use the guanidino acetic acid uh, and that can cross the blood brain barrier and then it methylates maybe in the brain. I mean, I'm just throwing hypotheses out there. I don't know, but, uh, we, it's, these are all potential things that I think, Hey, there, there could be something there, you know, to yeah. see, to see where it goes. There was one study that, that actually did see that GAA was actually better than creatine monohydrate at crossing the blood brain barrier. So that was pretty interesting, but that's only one study. I always say, Hey, just cause it's one study doesn't mean that it's, 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 it's one study. We got to take it. It's all a piece of the puzzle, right? We got to exactly same thing. Even once study is negative, doesn't mean it doesn't work either. You know, it's like, it's just another piece of the puzzle. We got to look at it in different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tony, you have any final comments before we let uh, Dr. Escalante? Uh, well, no, just some really fascinating information. I, I think you touched upon a lot of things that we've been wondering, uh, The you know, particularly in where we started the potential causes of death in the bodybuilders. And uh, I am very surprised that they, you know, the expedited atherosclerosis and atherogenesis is occurring so quickly, but um, really good insight. Uh, very interesting. And it, and it leads us to some of the, you know, maybe if nothing else, you know, the, some of the ways we can behave, uh, you know, or practices bodybuilders can take to mitigate this, even in the presence of super physiological dosing, right? And I think that would be helpful, like looking at the lifestyle, a healthy lifestyle for the bodybuilder, tough to achieve with all that training and high dosing, but maybe there are preventative measures that need to be considered 
while doing both, whether it's low intensity cardio for the heart itself or the left ventricle, who knows, but fantastic stuff. I found this really interesting. Yeah, Guillermo, this is great. Uh, definitely appreciate you coming on. It was a fascinating conversation. I yeah. love this stuff and, uh, you know, we could have talked forever, but uh, got to let you go. And uh, I do want to make one crass commercial message to promote the ISSN conference, June 15 to 17, Fort Lauderdale Beach. It's right on the beach. So if you're listening to this, make sure you come to the ISSN conference. The three of us will be there. So otherwise, mm -hmm. gentlemen, thank you and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me. Awesome.